I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My first job out of uni was for a company called Sparks.com, a startup boasting of being the world's largest online paper greeting card store. The average sale size was one card, which is worth a couple bucks. Once you found a card, we'd then ship it out to you, so postage alone eliminated any profit. But back then, I didn't know any better. Like so many other 20-somethings, I was entranced by this thing called the internet, which appeared to be minting overnight billionaires and changing just about how everything worked. I showed up to work in cargo shorts. Yes, cargo shorts. My desk was a painted door set on a pair of sawhorses. I played a lot of table football. It was great. Until I was laid off, along with about a third of the company. As the stock market imploded, Sparks.com's venture capital backers turned off the money spigot. And as chance would have it, it was around then that Michael and Sochi, living across the bay from my dingy two-bedroom apartment, were working on a website that may very well have hastened the demise of my first employer and put me out of a job. It was called Birthday Alarm, an astoundingly simple idea. It was a birthday reminder service. Turns out, it was wildly profitable. Perched on one of those impossibly steep, only in San Francisco hills is a stretch of a few blocks of lavish, spectacular homes. It's called, rather unimaginatively, Billionaire's Row. Birch Castle, an imposing five-story stone-walled estate the color of milk chocolate, definitely belongs. It is the home of Michael and Sochi Birch. A few months ago, I showed up at their door to talk to the Birches about the early days of social networking, and what will definitely go down as one of the most extraordinary chapters in the story of an industry that has changed, well, just about everything. Hi, it's Danny. Hi there. Just go ahead and push the door. Okay. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. We're leaving tomorrow to Chile. Yeah, I know. Hello. Hey. Oh, so cozy in here. The front door of their house sits at the bottom of the hill. So when you walk in, you have to trudge up a winding staircase with banisters the girth of a boa constrictor. Your reward for making it to the top? Sweeping views of the Golden Gate Bridge. And if you're thirsty from the climb... You can stop at the Birch Castle Pub, which they've assembled from two pubs that they bought in Britain, dismantled, shipped 3,000 miles, and then mashed together to create a proper British boozer right in the comfort of their own home. Yeah, so it's sort of British without being overly... Yeah, it's not British. too over the top. Yeah. Although that bar does look original. 
And what have you got on tap here? Oh, London, London Pride. Pride, yeah. Keep it real. <laughs> this was not my first time at the Birches. They like to entertain, to throw parties. And not long after I arrived to San Francisco, they had one at their house for all the British tech refugees who had washed up in San Francisco. It was a great day. But as my wife and I left, we marveled not only at the grandiosity of it all, but the source of it. Bebo. Chances are, you may not have heard of the company. That's because it was most popular outside of America. Way back in 2008, though, it was the number one social network in Ireland and New Zealand. In its heyday, it briefly held the title as the biggest website in Britain. Bigger than Google. And the Birches, through a combination of luck, cunning, and timing, sold Bebo at the perfect time in 2008 to AOL. The price? $850 million in cash. The Birches, who owned 70% of the company, walked away with $600 million. And this bears repeating, that was cash. Obviously, the Bebo sale transformed the Birches' life. We were the last train to leave the station. All hell broke loose. They left with a GDP of a small nation. They transformed an old brick building on the edge of the financial district into San Francisco's first British-style members club, whose membership is a who's who of the tech elite. They have also invested in more than 120 startups. Their biggest hit? Pinterest. The Birches were amongst its first investors, way back when it was worth just $5 million. I'm going to tell you the Bebo story, because it perfectly encapsulates Silicon Valley, a place where timing is everything. In this case, it was the foundational moment of the social media revolution. And that is what is so crazy about the Bebo story. It wasn't the next big thing. In fact, it was the exact opposite. For AOL, it was a disaster. In June 2010, just two years after the takeover that was meant to lead AOL's charge into the social media melee, it quietly sold Bebo to a small investment company in Los Angeles. The price? I think it might be a dollar. I'm Danny Fortson, West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times, and this is Tales of Silicon Valley. Who knew that was going to happen? Who knew that we were going to be this thing that was that big? Episode 2, The Bebo Billions. People treat me differently. And I think to myself, what is going on? And then I'm like, oh, now I remember. I made a lot of money in a short period of time. Making it arguably the single biggest repository of illustrated cock and balls ever recorded. Sochi Birch grew up in Pittsburgh, an unlovely industrial suburb about 40 miles east of San Francisco. It's a very small town. I think it was called Pittsburgh because there's a steel mill there as well as a Dow chemical plant. So there's, there's a lot of jobs there. After her first year at university, she was selected to spend a four-month semester in London. One evening, she ended up at a student pub. And it was the cheapest place to buy beer. She met a funny, impossibly skinny Englishman. He offered to buy me a drink, and he knew what I was drinking. I should have thought that was creepy, but I, I was really happy. <laughs> you, how did you know what she was drinking? Because I saw her the night before. <laughs> oh, so you were probably, like, surveilling. After uni, they got married, and so she moved to Britain. It was 1994. She got a job at the same company where Michael worked, where they had a graduate intake program, and she learned to code on the job. They worked there for the next four years and lived a fairly ordinary British life. 
They had their first kid in 1999, the height of the dot-com boom. And when Sochi went off for maternity leave, Michael decided he'd quit too and threw himself full-time into creating websites for companies. That and messing around with his own startup ideas. How hard could it be? He promised that if in three months he wasn't making money, he'd go get another job. Three years later, hadn't made a penny. Still Frustrated, and with the four of them just squeaking by on Michael's freelancer gigs, they decided to move to California, which, at the time, was dramatically cheaper than London. Even so, they had no money. We had to move in with my parents in the same house where I grew up in. So Michael and I, with our two young kids, they were less than one and three at the time. My parents were very happy to have us come back and move into their house. They actually vacated their master bedroom so that Michael and I and our two kids could stay there. It was not the most auspicious time to move to the heart of the global tech industry. It was 2002, and the great internet revolution appeared to be over. Hundreds of billions of dollars had evaporated overnight as the dot-com bubble burst. No one was starting companies. It was around then that a little website called Friendster launched. It was about to change everything, and the Birches were watching. And each person on Friendster has a personal network, which are all the people you're connected to through your friends and their friends and their friends. Jonathan Abrams, the Canadian coder behind Friendster, was frustrated by online dating sites. He set out to build a place that would not only make it easier to find a mate, but to connect with other people. He launched it on March 22, 2002, it was the first social network. So new, in fact, that he patented the concept. One of the first people he asked to play around with it was a marketing guy he knew called Jim Scheinman. I was married with a couple of kids, but this woman who was working with me was single, and I asked her to check out Friendster for a weekend, and, and I asked her, so how was it? And she said, changed my life. I was like, w you know, back in 2003, you never said that about a website in a weekend. So I asked her what happened. She said, well, I, I met a long-lost friend I hadn't talked to in 10 years, and we're going to have coffee next week, and I got a date for the, two weeks from now. I was like, okay, this is a big idea. Scheinman was about to take a job at another startup, Google, but was sucked in by Friendster. He was one of its first employees. The site quickly hit 1 million, then 4 million, then 10 million users. Next to Facebook's 2.7 billion users of today, that sounds laughably small. But back then, a few million people using this new thing was nothing short of phenomenal. We were growing like you'd never seen before. There was maybe one or two other companies, a contact sharing site that was doing something, you know, but nothing like this. And then there were hundreds of copycats, right? Hundreds. And some of them literally just copied our code. We would look at these competitors and, you know, they would forget to not take off the code and you'd see, like, copyright Friendster on their website, you know? One of those copycats was Michael Birch. He called his lookalike Ringo.com. It was exactly a Friendster company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so was that literally you saw Friendster go up and then you immediately... Um, put up Ringo, or how did it work? Yeah, a friend, a good friend of mine, still a good friend, Morgan Southern, had sent me an email and said, "I'll oh, check out this website, Friendster." And we were at the time we were just doing birthday alarm. And, and this was new. It was, it was when it was new. Yeah, yeah, it was relatively new. Yeah, um, I mean, it kind of grew quite quickly. And so I looked at it. And I was like, "Wow, this is great. This is like this is like the coolest new thing I've ever seen." And so I was like, "We should build one." And so he actually owned the domain name Ringo.com. So I did it with with him. And, and of Sochi and my brother at the time was involved as well. So less than two weeks later, after seeing it, we launched right. Ringo.com. 
So yes, it was a copy of Friendster, but I didn't want to just like copy it entirely. And so, so I looked at Friendster for like a couple of hours and they said, oh, I'm not going to look at it again, but I'm going to build something inspired by it. Right. And so I didn't look at it. And then I was about to go live with it. And I was like, just going to have one last look at Friendster. <laughs> Make sure I don't miss anything too important. And then I looked at it and it's like, oh, you have to be able to comment on one another's pages. They were called testimonials on, on Friendster. I was like, I think that one's really important. <laughs> I'm going to put it live. Like Friendster, Ringo took off. But for the Birches, there were still lean times. They had managed to move out of Sochi's parents and were renting an apartment in the bedroom community of Walnut Creek. The Birches shared a tiny office with two lawyers and an accountant, all in their 60s. It was quintessential American suburbia. And to complete the picture, they bought a used minivan to get them and their kids around town. We thought, we thought we were living the American dream when we got that. <laughs> we really did. <laughs> Ringo grew quickly. Too quickly, actually. Their servers couldn't handle the traffic. Not long after launching, Ringo notched up more than 400,000 users. Birch would hastily buy new servers, drive over to a building in Fremont, and plug them in in a desperate attempt to keep the site from crashing. Again, today those numbers sound tiny. But back then, it was something. But while Ringo was very good at attracting users, it was very bad at getting them to stay. People seemed enthused by the idea, and then let down by the experience. Meanwhile, their server costs were outstripping their income. Something had to give. Around this time in 2003, while the Birches were toiling away in Walnut Creek, Mark Zuckerberg had just begun attending classes at Harvard University, 3,000 miles away. He would not launch Facebook for another year. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Friendster was the biggest social network, but it wasn't going to hold that crown for long. The biggest threat was MySpace. And I just looked at their website and I was like, it's probably the worst website I've ever seen. <laughs> really? Yeah, and I just thought their website was terrible. I thought it looked like GeoCities. MySpace took off like a rocket. But in its early days, Ringo was bigger. 
The Birches, however, were struggling to pay the bills. They needed help. So they showed up at a conference in Berkeley for startups working on dating and social media websites. All their rivals knew about Ringo, but no one knew who was behind it. And here they were, a quirky Englishman and his American wife, driving up in their Dodge minivan. Which was very intimidating. <laughs> yeah. Did you have business cards? or No. What I would have paid to be a fly on the wall. All the would-be kings of social media, rubbing shoulders and having no idea what they were about to unleash. It was quite a day. The Birches met two people at that event who made offers to buy Ringo. One was from a company called Tickle. The other was iVillage, which back in the day was a very popular site. They were a big deal. They were more of a women's network, I think. And then we were in negotiations to sell to Tickle, and then we had a call from MySpace. I remember this weird conversation with, with Tom. <laughs> Tom from MySpace. <laughs> the three co-founders actually yeah. were on the call. And they were trying to buy it. And I was, but they made a decent offer. I think they offered half a million in MySpace stock and half a million in cash, which, again, pretty cheap for social network today. But yeah. <laughs> back then when there was two people working in a 120-square-foot office, it felt decent. But then I just looked, I just remember MySpace, we were much bigger than MySpace at the time. So he turned them down and sold instead to Tickle. The price, about $2 million in cash and stock. The Ringo sale was, in Silicon Valley parlance, the Birch's first exit. But it rankled them because they felt like they had no choice but to sell. And they had no choice because they had no money. Which is where Birthday Alarm comes in, their birthday reminder service. For Michael and Sochi, it was the key to pretty much everything that happened thereafter. Really, everything. The idea was simple. Most people only know the birthdays of their immediate family and a couple close friends. If you signed up to Birthday Alarm, it would ask you if you wanted to email your friends to ask their birthdays. The site would then send out an automated message, asking for their email addresses on your behalf, saying something like, I want to be reminded of your birthday. Can you tell me the date? It was an easy ask. Lots of people said yes. It does what it says on the tin. Right, it's, it just sends out We don't actually have a tin, but it does do <laughs> yeah. what it would say on the tin. Every friend that said yes would get the same prompt that you had, asking if they too wanted to know their friends' birthdays. And on and on it went. In the business, this is called viral growth, an idea or product that spreads through person-to-person contact, like a virus, as opposed to relying on flashy and expensive marketing campaigns. Birthday Alarm was growing, but in 2003, it exploded when Michael came up with an address book importer. Any social media app worth its salt these days requests access to your contacts. But back then, importing someone's entire address book was pretty new. And an astounding number of people simply agreed, handing over not just the contents of their little black books, but their email passwords. Birch coded it over the weekend. I'll let him explain what happened next. It went live, I think, Sunday night. 24 hours later, we'd added 100,000 new members in one day. We'd gone from 10,000 to 100,000. And then I think over that week, it climbed a little bit. And then we were adding 150,000 a day. And, and how that, did that function work? You just asked someone at the time, it was Hotmail and Yahoo. This was not before Gmail, but certainly before Gmail was anything big. It would ask for their Hotmail email and Hotmail password. And then we would, behind the scenes, log in as them. Like we'd fake a browser session effectively, yeah. log in as them, scrape all their contacts, 
display all their contacts on our website to them and say, do you want select which People ones would you'd want to People would give you their passwords. They would, yeah. We were a little bit surprised. <laughs> we didn't store them. We were nice. We didn't right. do anything wrong, you know, yeah. bad with them, but we certainly could have if we wanted to. Yeah. And then they'd select the friends they wanted to invite. We didn't automatically invite them. The ones we selected, we'd then invite them. And so people were, at that point, they were inviting 100 people on average from Hotmail and Yahoo. Right. And we just assumed that Hotmail and Yahoo would work out that this one IP address on our server was hitting them thousands of times a day with different account details. And they would just like block the IP address. Yeah. So we were super excited that we were now growing 150,000 members a day, thinking the next day it would stop. And it never did, ever. So we just carried on. So we added, I think, over 40 million members in one year to our website, which was crazy. Keep in mind, these were still the very early days of the web. The days of Google and Facebook building empires based on granular personal data were still a distant possibility. Google was still private. And Facebook? Not even a glimmer in a teenage Mark Zuckerberg's eye. Birthday alarm, however, was growing like a weed. But it wasn't making them any money until they started charging people to send electronic greeting cards when they received birthday reminders. The floodgates opened. Almost overnight, the Birches were bringing in millions. When we started charging for greeting cards, we went from 10,000 a month to 10,000 a day. So we made 300,000 a month. And that continued. So we ended up peaking at around four and a half million a year revenue with just the two of us working from an office. And I think what's relevant is that we had been self-funded until then. We took a reverse mortgage on our flat in Richmond, and we were basically living off of our flat. And just like that, way back in 2003, the Birches had come up with not one, but two very profitable viral websites. Suddenly, they were living large. They left Walnut Creek and bought a house near Alamo Square, a hilltop park in San Francisco that sits across from the Painted Ladies, the multicolored houses made famous by the sitcom Full House. It was actually a very kind of good life. It, we could have gone on like that for years. But Michael um, decided not to. <laughs> <laughs> you see, for all their success, neither Birthday Alarm nor Ringo held a candle to Friendster. Abrams had raised a bunch of money from Silicon Valley's top venture capitalists. His little website was national news. Social networking was officially a thing. But cracks were already appearing in the Friendster edifice. The site was buggy. Pages would take forever to load. Abrams was shunted aside and replaced by a new CEO, who was replaced by another CEO, who was replaced by another CEO. Friendster star was fading, which left an opening an opening for a new rival called Bebo. You know, Michael never got the credit that he should have, but he was like the wizard of viral marketing. He understood that better than anybody else before today. Like today we, we have growth hackers and viral marketing experts, but when it wasn't even a term, a term of art and, and, a, and a career, he was the best at that. I had a vision of Michael wearing, I, I, really, I talked to him about it. Like I said, let's put a wizard hat on you and the wizard robe and I, you're on the front of Forbes you know, in front of Sunday Times. Like, that needs to happen. Next week on Tales of Silicon Valley, Bebo starts from the Birch's bedroom and goes global. It becomes the top website in countries all over the English-speaking world before it all comes crashing down. The social media industry takes off. 
And the Birches, they get out in the nick of time. Tales of Silicon Valley was written and narrated by me, Danny Fortson, with production by Chica Ayers at Rethink Audio. Matt Hall is the executive producer for Wireless Studios. It was a Wireless Studios production for Times Newspapers. And one more thing. If you enjoy this series, head over to my other podcast, Danny in the Valley, where you can hear interviews with everyone from Bill Gates and Mark Andreessen to the anonymous startup founder working on what they hope will be the next big thing. That's Danny in the Valley, wherever you get your podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.